0: Welcome to the Power of Space podcast. My name is Ali Jafarian, and I'm your host. The Power of Space is a reflection of the total human experience from the lens of creators, leaders, visionaries, and other extraordinary people. We'll explore compelling thoughts, unique perspectives, and deep awareness around creating space in our everyday lives. These discussions are intended to ignite our natural curiosity and inspire us to realize new levels of personal transformation. I'm glad you're here, and I hope you enjoy the content. Now let's create some space. Welcome back, folks. Today, I have a special guest, Mr. Pedram Shojayi. He is a fellow Iranian. Pedram, you're the first Iranian I've had on my podcast, so nice. that is a gift. Thank you for being here. Also known as the urban monk in the world, I could say so many things about you, Pedram, but I'm not going to because my thing on this show is to actually let guests introduce themselves. And so, how would you like to introduce yourself?
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, you might have made a mistake there. I'm the guy who's uh, probably not going to say anything. I'll go real big picture. Persian immigrant came over here. Of course, you're supposed to be a doctor. Followed the path. Hated what I was seeing. You know. Top ranked, going into UCLA, I was like, man, I don't want, I don't want this life. Met a kung fu master, became a monk in a kung fu lineage, became a doctor of Oriental medicine, owned an integrative medical group for years. Realized I was on the wrong side of the fence on the sick care equation. Got into corporate wellness to help people not need me, and then ended up writing books and making films. So it's been a circuitous path, but you know, my greatest accomplishments are two children and a lovely marriage, and I ski a lot.
0: Mm, Yes, I saw that. Do you ski in Utah mostly?
1: Yeah, we moved to Park City in 2019 before the pandemic, which made me look like a genius. (laughs) The year of the pandemic, I skied, what, 65 days? And, you know, I'm a Zen tree skier. I've been a mountain guy my whole life, got away to the mountains a lot, and finally came to the life math where it occurred to me that I would rather live in the green and visit the gray than vice versa. Mm. So, you know, growing up in LA and so every, everyone I know in New York is escaping to Montauk every weekend and all this. And I decided it was time to flip the script and to live in paradise. And, you know, next week I'll be in Manhattan and I enjoy that too, but I'd rather live this way.
0: I love that. I love that for so many reasons, Pedro. Environment is very in focus for me right now. Did you feel this or... In the last few years, especially with some of the the pandemic events, did environment become more important to you? I'm curious.
1: Growing up, I would go backcountry backpacking and do stuff usually Iranian boys didn't do. You know, spent a lot of time in the outdoors, in the wilderness, but grew up in an urban setting. And got to the point where, you know, it's just, man, I love nature. I love being out. I love the degree of exposure I wanted for my children was different, you know, growing up there. And so I started getting a little wiggly, having my kids, you know, and we lived in a master crafted community in Orange County and they used pesticides everywhere. And I'm like, man, what are, these guys are such monkeys and I can't stop them from spraying here. Mm-hmm. And so those issues had always kind of come up and in all transparency and candor, I had also become a little bound by my brand right because I was an ascetic monk and t- decided to come back and become a householder and in that transition became the urban monk right and so then a lot of the brand was here's how you keep your you know your shit together in the city but then as a parent it no longer served like I was binding myself to that narrative and not doing what was best for my children and what i knew to be best for my children was having them grow up far away from the pesticides and the poisons and having them have every possible chance to thrive. Mm. Right. But then there was a whole weird thing pre pandemic where I started to freak out. I was like, honey, we got to get out of here. She's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I don't know. I feel something bad is going to happen. I don't know what it is. I have a premonition. You got to trust my monk juju on this. Like we got to (laughs) go. And so put up our house for sale and did a big analysis of best place to raise children and park city one, And we moved and my wife was just like, dude, this guy's lost his mind. I'm like, I'm just telling you, I I feel something, something's not right. We got to go. Six months after we moved, I'm living in, you know, 200,000 acres of woods behind my house on on a ski mountain and the pandemic hits and everyone I know is freaking out and losing their minds and locked indoors, And I'm out with my kids skiing and hiking every day. And it was just like jackpot, right? So score one for the monk juju, you know?
0: Yes, Oh, it's so real, That's so great. Nature is immensely important in my household. My kids, myself, my family as a unit, were always better in nature. It's part of some of the values we've created together. And it's so interesting that you felt it coming. You felt it beforehand, so you made the move, which most of us may or may not have felt, but even if we did, we'd be too scared. So I honor you for doing that. That's a really cool story. You know, the other thing that it kind of lends into as it relates to your story. So I had the opportunity to be with you in Utah when you spoke to our Front Row Dads group, which was a gift. I remember leaving that convo very curious that I picked up your book, Focus, Bringing Time, Energy, and Money into Flow. I read that book as I was traveling Europe with my family and I read it very slowly. I even reread areas of the book, which I don't normally do. And I'm saying this, one, because I want to compliment you on the energy you put into the book. But two, the bigger gift for me was that after I read that book, I felt very full and I stopped reading for a while because I sat with it page. I and mean, I was like, wow, there is enough here for me to be with that. I don't need to pick something else up. I stopped listening to podcasts. And just recently we are now in September. That was like April, May. I've uh, picked up another friend's book. So I'm I'm reintroducing myself to uh, consumption. It was a really nice break. And I want to talk about the book with you. One of the things that stood out, though, before we jump into some of the, the awesome concepts is that I recall either in the book and or on your website, you having a nice, stance behind self-discovery, which is very important to me. I think something along the lines, you you believe everyone should have room for self-discovery, which I align with. That's why I do the stuff that I do with space, the work that I do. And I'm curious where that started for you. When did you start self-inquiry? When did you start asking the big questions?
1: It's funny. I remember as a kid, two instances in particular. One, I was... Visiting the only time I've been to Iran since I left Iran, you know, we left at the revolution. I was three when we left mm-hmm. at the age of eight. My mom, my sister, and I went. My dad stayed back, and you know, the political crap happened. My dad's not going. Um, and as an eight year old, we were taking a tour of some subterranean cave network in Hamadan, and my uncle, as a prank, told the guy, We're you know, two miles underground. And as a prank, he told the guy to just pretend his flashlight ran out of batteries. And you're deep, deep, deep in a a labyrinth of, you know, frozen water and, you know, all of it. And so everyone just starts freaking out and screaming and we're going to die. We're going to die. And if you've ever been around, you know, Iranian women, it's a real hysterical moment, right? They're very animated about this stuff. And it was like everyone around me is going into this complete chaotic scene. And here's little Pedrom at like eight years old, just sitting there quietly going, huh, this again, this wasn't supposed to happen now. And like this part of me that had died many times before was just present in that moment, recognizing another mortality event and being confused that it had happened off schedule. Mm -hmm. And but we grew up, in, you know, in an Islamic revolution, and my parents are like, you know, fuck that shit, we're out of here. You know, like we didn't grow up with religion forced on us, right? Mm-hmm. It was like go find God on your own. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't grow up with any of that, right? It's not like that was pre-programmed in my mind. It was a unique incident that triggered a, a timeless memory that got activated, and I had a mystical experience, right? It was just like, wait a minute, I. I am more than my physical body and I've done this before. So, you know, we come out and ha 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 and you do, uh, uncle's a jerk and, you know, everyone's doing it. And my mom's like, why are you so quiet? I'm like, Ugh. right. And so that was a foundational moment. And it took me years to kind of come back to that memory to be like, whoa, that's not normal. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, several other things, if you have a kid bouncing his basketball around in the backyard and there's like a line of ants and you know growing up watching gi joe i'm a bomber and i'm just bombing these ants from above you know troop formations and stuff and i remember stopping dead in my tracks and having this like innate sense of morale that outside of me morality that stepped in and was just like you're taking life mm. and and i was just like whoa like hey is, is this god like who what is this? Right. And and so a few of these moments that are very easy to forget and brush by that have kind of come back where I'm like, ah, that's interesting. Right. I didn't have any of this implanted in me. It came from the inside out and for better or for worse, informed my judgment and my decisions going forward. And, you know, really at the kind of this pivotal point of being pre-med at UCLA and doing all the work to get there was like, nope, I'm going to be a monk. And so you go back to the breadcrumbs God leaves you, maybe, and you, you can trace it in the aftermath, but it was pretty early, right? It was pretty early for this guy.
0: It's so fascinating because most people wouldn't go back that far. They'd find some pivotal moment in earlier mid-adulthood, or we have this, this easy way to relate to midlife crises where life hits us in the face, right? But you had them early. That is wild. Wow.
1: It's formative, right? It was formative. And I, you know, and I didn't remember it into my twenties. I was well into my monk days where I sat on a cushion and and remembered this. And I had to go like, you know, confer with my mom. Like, hey, mom, did this actually happen? And she's like, Oh, yeah, your uncle's such a jokester and da da. da, da. She's like, Yeah, you're really quiet. And then I told her this experience and she's like, Yeah, you know, they're not mystical people, right? She was like, Oh, wow, okay. But it absolutely changed my stars before I had a choice in the matter.
0: Totally. Did you find your way back to these powerful memories during your time as a monk or in deep meditation? How did you get back there?
1: You know, I'm trying to recall timelines here, which get a little blurry when you get older, right? But latter Latter monk years, early priest years, you do, there's a lot of work to get undone, right? You know, I spent four years as a dedicated monk, and a lot of that was just cleaning out crap and negative memes and, and and bad habits and sense of self and all sorts of ideas you have about who you think you should be and all that crap. So there was a lot of housekeeping that then cleared the way for intuition and these other things that, that you know, one would take for granted having a clear channel enough to be able to like, go back and see this stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's probably, you know, if becoming a monk was year one, this would be like year six or seven, maybe when I started remembering this stuff. That's cool.
0: Okay, so now I wanna shift back to the book. One of the, the most powerful concepts I took away from the book was the life garden. Five areas, health, career, family, friends, life's passions and desired things. And they require resources. They require water, which is time, energy, and money. So that metaphor, is simple, but profound, like, cool. I only have so much time, energy, and money, and I can use it for these different areas. And then I run out of them. I think it's powerful because anybody can understand that. And it's funny after I read that, I remember getting back here to Denver after our trip. I was hiking with a buddy and I was like, Applying the garden to other things. Like we're talking about his business. And I was applying the garden to his business. I was like, look, dude, you only have these, you only water this much stuff. And so the life garden, the resources, the time, energy, and money. I was telling you before we get record, there's so many questions I could create. But what I think would be awesome for you to take wherever you want to take is the inspiration of the life garden. So, how did this come about? Great question. I've
1: always been a metaphor dude. If I had a superpower, all my friends say like, you know, I pull metaphors out of, out of nowhere that are just somehow intrinsically tied with, you know, kind of the natural world in a way where they become universally understandable, right? Because we all come from nature. Mm-hmm. And so as I started studying Qigong, as I started studying these internal arts and kind of the drawing of energy from nature and flowing this energy through your life, I started to also become abundantly aware of the fluctuations in the flow of these resources, right? Fall is a very different time than spring and you make hay when the sun is shining. And and so, you know, falling into the rhythms of nature and Having a better understanding of the ebb and flow and the quality of energy and the expression of energy in in relation to where we are around this star called the sun became a big part of my understanding of how to expend versus conserve throughout a calendar year. I have a very different cadence in November, December than I do, say, in April, right? And the energy expression, the hormonal expression, things that we, we understand better now. So, you know, that became a part of my study. And as I started to round out of my 30s and really understand that no matter how much Qigong and yoga and, you know, superfoods you eat, there is an ebb and a flow and there is a balance. And, you know, youth is wasted on the young, as you know, right? I started to kind of understand the misallocation of energy. And this became my study because I was a young guy as a monk. I learned all this stuff. It was like super powerful. And look at my hands shaking and look at me, you know, look how cool I am. And I was very good at teaching people how to acquire this skill and to have more power. The downside of this that took several months, if not a couple of years to really become fully aware of was I was starting to become much more cognizant of the chaos I was helping Mm co-create in these individuals who would come in wanting more energy and having weeds all over their garden, right? Having a chaotic operating system. So we were just putting more energy into a chaotic system, which was creating a bigger chaotic bubble in, in the world. And then their marriages would fall apart or, you know, they'd have these big kind of lightning strike events because what they weren't doing was reconciling where their energy was going and what their overcommitments were about and all that. And so I really kind of doubled down my vows are to make the world a better place. And I found that through teaching mind-body practices and helping empower people in a certain percentage, not all obviously most people did great, but in a certain percentage of this population, I was creating more suffering. And so that became my study and that that, you know, eventually became the life garden work, which is man, I'm not even going to teach you how to do this stuff if you don't have your shit together, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and so it became a prerequisite. Is like, how do you set your table before we eat this meal?
0: Totally. you know. And as you're describing that, a question that came up for me is in helping people with this and doing it in, with your own practice, have you found that you need to have one type of energy for the other or is it more of an integrated balancing act?
1: Depends on your personal math. I mean, most people trade their time for money mm-hmm. and that, you know, rides on their energy, right? You sleep, you eat your breakfast, you go spend it at the office, you get a paycheck. That transaction is pretty routine, right? And so I think that there's an active exchange between time, energy, and money. And energy and money can be re- re- replenished. Time when you run out, you're done, mm-hmm. right? And so the understanding that you only have a certain amount of heartbeats here on planet Earth, and Lord knows when your time is up, right? But the understanding that you have a certain amount of heartbeats and that you have this bioelectric energy generating, you know, that powers your brain that then allows you to curate a life of your choosing. To me, it's a very profound and sacred thing. And one of the things that really drew my attention to... How the parasitic universe was just cannibalizing us was how our attention has become monetized, how our attention has become productized, and how the attention economy is pulling us right out of our own dreams and aspirations and plans for our own lives and, you know, go to the highest bidder, right? Advertising, politics, you name it, we're being pulled out. And the average adult in the Western world, especially in America, maybe has one hour of focus a day and the rest of the time it's just splintered attention going where? It's going into TikTok, it's going into Facebook, it's going into a Toyota ad commercial, wherever the hell it's going, it's not watering your plants, right? And so that became a really big part of my work is to be like, holy crap, you got to put your foot down and take it back because if your focus isn't on your own life garden, that energy is going somewhere. It's probably not for you.
0: Oh man, that's so real. I think that this is something people hear and don't take seriously. Like, oh, what do you mean is that commercial? No, does it's like the the amount of energy that's created by humans that have an agenda for us that create the distractions, etc. And so, bringing awareness to that is not only something that I have this like visceral mission reaction to, which is why and this is teeing up my next question for you, why I have so much conflict with even being on social media. You have created amazing documentaries, books, media, a lot of stuff that is very aspirational for me. Like I see the content you're creating. I'm like, this is the stuff I want my kids to watch. This is the stuff I'm proud to say, hey, go check this out. So my question becomes, do you face conflict? Where you're like, well, I know the power of this stuff. But I also am creating it for the movement, the the intentions you have. Is that is there ever conflict there? Internal conflict?
1: Every day. I mean, every day. It's Frodo's ring, and you got to be really careful not to wear it. And you know, if you want to geek out on another metaphor, this is what kind of drew me out. Is you know, a guy like me, I'm a lot more comfortable in a cave, right? I'm a lot more comfortable breathing to my navel, and Mm -hmm. you know, peace is easy when you're not engaged in worldly affairs. But if you think about Luke Skywalker blowing up a Death Star, he wasn't sitting in a cave and doing it with the Force. He had to get in an X-Wing fighter, and then he used the Force in the right moment to blow up the Death Star. Mm -hmm. And so this is the technology, this is the tool, and people are getting lost in these threads, and people are getting lost in this electronic universe to really... Daisy chain servers with AI grabbing their attention based on algorithms and just really dark, dark paths that people have no idea what they're following is actually probably not even human generated at this point or human generated for commercial gain. And so, yeah, I mean, that conflict is there, especially in film. You know, we're, you know, we have video going. I don't know if there's audio or video or both, but it's also the light has an intrinsic value of inspiring consciousness. And for me to use light and bend light and create film to inspire people to wake up and turn their awareness inward and wake up to themselves has also proven to be an effective mechanism to bring people back to themselves. And so you could hate the game, but it's where we're at. And look, I was an ascetic monk. Right. And when you're an ascetic monk, metaphorically, you're sitting up there on a rock meditating. You might get one or two wayward hikers that run into you and say, Holy crap, who are you? Tell me what, you know, tell me what this is all about. And their world is falling apart faster than it's fixing. Or you just walk down the hill, walk through the village and smile at everybody. And then they say, Oh my goodness, who's that? Right.
0: Hey friends, this is a quick break to tell you about something new. I'm offering called the space self-discovery immersion. This is a unique six month program that combines tools, exercises, and personalized one-on-one coaching with me. The program is designed to help you find clarity in who you are, how you operate and what makes you come alive. This self-discovery immersion is a reflection of my own journey with some of the best resources and insights I've learned as a coach. It can help you rediscover your unique gifts help you break through your biggest challenges, give you a deeper sense of awareness and purpose, and ultimately, help you realize your most authentic self. That's what it's all about, getting back to who you are at your core and living your best life. If this speaks to you in some way, please reach out. I offer a free alignment call to discuss your curiosity, and I'd love to hear from you.
1: And so for me, it's difficult being in the village square. That's not my my inclination. It's not my tendency. I'm not a look-at-me kind of guy. But if my said mission is to help the world, hiding in a cave isn't going to do it.
0: Mm, Yep, that's real. The second you started using Star Wars, I had a sense of where you were going. Dude, I have to ask you this because... I watched Star Wars as a kid, the classics, and then my son is now seven, so he's becoming interested and we've been re-watching the new ones. And I don't know about you, but I have a whole different interpretation of Star Wars now, like whole different, like there's still the battles, but as you're talking about Luke getting up and harnessing the force and the energetic side of me, the one that wants to be and understand and play with energy is like, oh my gosh, whoever was part of that was, co-creating something way more than just a movie. Does that land with you at all or no?
1: I mean, it is the religion of, of my generation, right? People have left church and they've gone to, you know, Jedi Order. And so, I mean, you think about it. I mean, it was based on... Work that it. I mean, the Jedi Temple story. I could tell you the allegory of the Shaolin monk who turned dark, and the Shaolin Temple, and mm-hmm. the monks of the Shaolin tradition. I mean, it's where I studied Shaolin Kung Fu. I mean, they were the defenders of good, and so all of this was built into Joseph Campbell's work, and then they borrowed from Joseph. So this is years and years of threads of human mythology built into, uh, you know, sci-fi backdrop. And then, you know, look, you could, you could argue about Disney taking it and messing it up, but you know, I got to say, Andor was excellent. My Mm. kids and I watch Ahsoka. I mean, there's, there's, there's still some very good things being created inside of the ethos of that, that universe that I think have positive messaging and very good inspirational juju. So, you know, again, look, it's, it's a moving body of work and I'm a fan of it. it. No, it's not the same but I still think it's infinitely better than the other crap my kids want to watch.
0: Yep. I feel you there, brother. 100%. Yeah. And I thank you. Cause I didn't realize there was intentional human mythology behind there. And now you've intrigued me to go and dig and, and learn a little bit about that. Go
1: read uh, Joseph Campbell, Hero with a Thousand Faces. I mean, Luke Skywalker is <clears> like,
0: <throat> you know what I mean? Like,
1: and, and you start going back into the the samurai myths. You go back into you know the work of the Shaolin Temple. And you look at the foundational stories of Bodhidharma and how he inspired the Shaolin monks to then learn Qigong, the 18 hands of the Lohan. And they became the defenders of good because they had to be strong and fight for what's right. And the Shaolin monks were really the original Jedi order. And this is all Mm -hmm. based in real human history, not even mythology, you know, mythology was kind of borrowed upon it.
0: That is so cool, wow. So as it relates to the Shaolin monks, you've mentioned the Shaolin temple, for those of us, including myself, who are quite ignorant to this uh, part of history, this part of the world, what would you share with us as it relates to how you still bring that culture, those concepts into what you do today?
1: Yeah, I mean, you'll see it in social media where I I punch trolls, right? I don't come from the school of weakness. And so what happened with the foundational story of Bodhidharma, he was a, a renegade wizard, if you will, who uh, pissed off the emperor because he would just tell it like it is. And, you know, that's not what you do when you're in a people-pleasing culture. And so they're like, you know, get this guy out of here. And there are stories where, you know, he comes from the Caucasus Mountains. Uh, He could have been Persian. There's actually a really interesting story about, you know, who he was and where he came from. But eventually he ended up going and parking up in a cave. And going into deep meditation above this Shaolin, the Young Bamboo Forest Temple Monastery, and allegedly melting the the stone walls of the cave with his mind and turning into glass, and you know all sorts of stories that I can't confirm or deny, right? But monks would walk by and be like, "Hey, there's some crazy, you know, old wizard up there," and so he'd be starting to become a, a bit of an enigma, and. He became known to the Shaolin monks. And so at some point they're like, man, this guy's pretty cool. We should invite him down. Right. And so they invite him down into the monastery. And again, this guy got kicked out of the the court for telling it like it is. And so he's not pulling punches. And so he walks in there and it's these skinny, sickly monks sitting around all day in uncomfortable positions because they're nothing but meat and bone meditating for world peace While at the same time, the village down the hill from the monastery and the the entire area was plagued by ravaging bands of vagabonds who would come in and rape and pillage and take whatever they wanted and beat up the innocent villagers. And these guys would give up their bread and get their butts kicked. And so they're sitting here bearing witness to all this, meditating for world peace. And he's like, look at you guys, you suck. You're ridiculous, right? You like good is something worth defending, and you're not fulfilling your dharma. You're just hypocrites because you could pray for world peace, but you're complicit in these crimes. And so he taught them Qigong, Kung Fu, brought them to power, and the next time the bandits came into town, they were met with a palm heel strike to the face and they kick their asses out. And then they started making these concentric rings of defense for the good villagers. And then they became the defenders of good, but it all sprung from stepping into the circle of your own personal power in standing for the righteous good that you are praying for. And sometimes you have to do that as a warrior. And so they became the warrior monks. It became the story of the Jedi. And it influences every decision I make because it's very easy to be like, oh, forgive them, right? Or you got to get up after them because evil won't stop, Mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, again, it's why I got on the X-Wing. Not because it's more comfortable than the cave, but because evil won't stop because the world needs help that you have to activate yourself become powerful in a way where then you can be a warrior for good.
0: Mm, I love that. And I feel that from you. I felt that when you were with us in Utah. I felt that from your book because not only is there a theme around finding your power, which I love, but you remind us often in the book, like, yo, go do it. Like, this is about you. I'm not going to do it for you. I'm just sharing. I'm a guide. So I love that you live that and you speak to it because I I feel that. Thank you.
1: Thank you. That's one of the biggest uphill challenges anyone in the PDEV or health space has. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you the easiest way is to turn the boat around and go down the river. And the river is six pack abs in eight minutes, right. get rich quick, right? Everyone is promising hyperbole and moving away from the only formula that actually works, which is you have to work on yourself. You have to do the work. I'm not saying that it's a popular message, but I'm saying it's right. Right. And that's the line I've held my entire, like if I, you know, I'm going to do any of this crap. I'm not going to sugarcoat the fact that most people don't have enough discipline to step up and do what it takes to make their lives work. And then they complain about their lives not working. And then they buy all the stupid products, pills, potions and lotions and follow the gurus who tell them they could do it for them. And it's just fake.
0: Totally. Yep. That's so real. It's so real. And this actually comes to one of the final things that I wanted to ask you about as it relates to the book and your work, you talk about vitality. I don't see vitality being talked about enough. I think it's a, a big word. I think it's a strong word. I also think it's a word that can require a deeper understanding. How would you describe vitality to people, especially in context of like this, do your work, do your inner work, find your power.
1: Thank you. I love that question. If you look at the foundational kind of traditional medicines on planet earth that come from traditions on all the continents, they were anchored in this concept of vitalism which is the body has an innate healing capacity. Life grows, life adapts, life is something that begets more life, and life is good, right? And that energy of life and vitality is innate inside of all of us. And so the vitalistic traditions really paid homage to supporting the homeostatic systems of the body to enable the body to live in a place where vitality was able to grow Mm -hmm. and vitality becomes resilience. Vitality becomes enhanced immunity. Vitality becomes parasympathetic dominance. And there's a lot of things that we can now kind of attribute to this Concept of vitality that have to do with living in a flow state and being outside of central nervous system activation and all these things. And it wasn't until really World War I where surgery and penicillin started saving more of our boys than our enemies' boys that we were like, oh, mm-hmm. hell yeah, let's win this war. And then by World War II, we just got to the point where we were so good at surgery, steroids, and antibiotics that the model of allopathy started to really crowd out the vitalistic models. I'm like, oh come on, that's all some you know hippie you know ancient nonsense. Look at us, we're saving lives. And so it was very true that in acute care type of setting. Those are absolutely the tools that you want to have at your disposal. But what happened is they crowded out the discourse and you know, also became supported by a very lucrative pill for an ill drug model and an insurance model and all these different kind of extrapolations that are layers of abstraction away from true health, which are the insurance model and the drug model and all these things that I've also spoken very adamantly against in my career that have crowded out the reality that, For all the chronic diseases and all the problems that we're really suffering from in the Western world in particular, these are lifestyle diseases and they have more to do with this concept of vitality diminishing and our lights flickering, waiting for a doctor to say, now you have a diagnosis and here's a pill and we've lost the script. And when you lose your vitality, not only do you lose control over your health and hand your you know control over to the guy who made you sit in the waiting room and was rude to you when he saw you for six minutes and threw a pill at you, but you also start to lose your agency. you start to lose your clarity, you start to lose your focus. You start to lose the energy of life that you would otherwise invest forward in a bigger, brighter, more meaningful future. And you're just kind of passing your time watching TikTok and getting drugs thrown at you. It's the matrix, right? And so I think that the concept of vitality and the essence of the narrative around vitalism, first of all, you know, on a macro level of, you know, I've been in the healthcare world for a long time and a consultant around this is, I think it's the solution to the chronic health, chronic disease, you know, bankrupting America problem, but that's not profitable for the the powers that be. But I also think on an individual level, the only game in town is to circle the wagons, turn your attention inward, find where your vitality is being robbed, shore up the deficits, build your vitality, and then start building from the inside out with your own health, get your family healthy, robust, and happy, get your finances, get your own dreams and aspirations, then be able to be useful to your society and give back and all these things. And I think everything's been retroverted to, you know, waiting for the cops to protect you and the hospital to to save your life and the politician to fix your problems. And that is the problem, Mm -hmm. right? I think individual vitality and individual agency are the missing ingredients in all the problems of the world and everyone's waiting for someone else to do something and fix it. And you get the world that we have.
0: So years ago, I had a role as a software engineer, part of a founding team at a healthcare startup. It was exciting. This was pre-kids. We were a stellar company. And two years into that, I learned enough about the healthcare system to be like, I can't do this. So I love that you align against, you know, using the Jedi force and going against the grain of what we could describe as a broken system to just to say it lightly, right? And I remember how that struck me and my nervous system reacted and I literally quit like overnight on un- amicable terms. But I was like, I can't do this. I know too much. I don't think this is actually helping people. We were like interacting with PBMs and it was nasty. And so coming back to that, I love that you align against that larger mission because it's real. I also think that to bring some of the power and the simplicity from your book and to explain to people in just raw essence, it's taking control of your diet, exercise, sleep, and mindset. And like, if you can do that, right. And bring that power back in, then all these external factors, healthcare, this insurance actually kind of fade away. You know, it's like there is no need for them. But to your point, we've been conditioned to think that that's the way. And so it's like you said, it's exactly why there's a a sense of loss of vitality. Or some people might not even know what that word means, which is why I appreciate you speaking to it.
1: Thank you. Yeah. And you don't know what you got till it's gone, but then you also don't know what it was until you felt it and so i think it's also why i think a lot of people are getting into psychedelics and all these things is they're having these experiences that were never really available to them in their their psyche and their consciousness now downstream i think that's creating a lot of problems as well because you're mistaking the the map for the terrain but i think the experience of vitality and hopefully everyone who's listening has had some experience, you know, when they were younger. Hopefully when it's like, oh my God, yeah, I remember just being boundless and full of energy and feeling great. Right. Um, you know, uh, youth is wasted on the young. But you should feel that way all the way through your entire life. And if you don't, then there's solution sets for this, right? Like I've been in the functional medicine world for a long time. You could test for stuff. You could find heavy metals. You can check for mold. You can look at nutritional deficiencies. You can lift more weights, right? I mean, there there are solutions to this that fix that. But I think people are so used to, you know, if there's 10 bars of energy. I think most people are accustomed to running at three bars and getting to maybe the fourth bar with like two cups of coffee, never understanding their potential to create and be a powerful human on planet Earth because everyone around them is sleepwalking right? And so that's why it's important to hang out with people that inspire you and people that pull you up because the culture is very much a zombie culture and it's designed as such. Just pay your taxes, buy my drugs, vote this way. You have freedom of speech, but not too much. You should shut up, right? And, and, and so <laughs> it, yeah. it's it's a trap. And the only way you spring the trap is you wake up. And you cannot wake up without vitality because that fuels your consciousness and your brain.
0: Mm, I am with that. Wow. Yes. Yes and yes. Okay. I have a few fun rapid fire questions before we wrap. Is that cool? Yeah. All right. First one for you. What is your favorite Persian food?
1: Fesun <laughs> um, is, And particularly my mom's in June. Yes. Um Can't beat it.
0: That's a great answer. <laughs> Mine happens to be gourmet sabzi and it would be my dad's gourmet sabzi. So oh, I love that answer. <laughs> All right. Second question, Pedro. What animal would you be if not human?
1: Ooh, you could be a bear. Hmm think i'd be a bear i have a bear disposition you know i'm very casual and carefree but don't mess with me but i'm you know enjoying kind of tromping around the woods and i care for my cubs um i just love bears
0: that is cool last summer i was in montana with some good friends and we were in the heart of grizzly country we did not encounter a grizzly but i respected the fear that those grizzlies command in their territory and as we were learning some, some fun, but somewhat scary stories from these cowboys that were guiding with us. They reflected stories kind of like this, like, yo, I ran into a grizzly. It was very clear that this was its area and it's it instilled some fear, but it just wanted to eat some berries because I didn't really mess with it. And maybe not all grizzly stories end that way, but I think a bear is a very powerful creature in nature. And we tend to like be so scared of them when in reality, Maybe they just want peace of their own, you
1: know? And if you look at the Shaolin salute, it's, you know, I come in peace, but I'm going to back it if you mess with me. Uh, and I think bears really have that. It's just like, oh my God, he yes. is so cute and delightful. Don't get any closer.
0: Totally, totally. <laughs> oh, I love that answer too. All right, last one. What's one of your favorite childhood memories? And it can't be the one you shared at the beginning.
1: No, no, that wasn't a favorite memory. That okay. was a weird memory. Um, my favorite childhood memories all revolve around being with my immediate family, going on trips. My dad had bought a motor home and you know, we were the only Brown kids around. So we did white kid things, right? My dad bought a motor home and we would go to the grand Canyon. We'd go to Yosemite. We'd go to all these places. My sister and I would sleep up top and they had a thing down there. And I just remember like, I don't know, maybe it's like the the caravan jeans, right? But like having my entire tribe with me and going to these awesome places and feeling together. And it's one of the greatest gifts that they gave us is, you know, we're with you and we're together. And so, you know, I do a lot of trips like that with my kids because those are the foundational memories. These guys, you know, I'm gonna blink my eyes. These guys are gonna be in college. These guys are gonna be, you know, gone. And I look back at the roots of the anchor of, of how my parents raised us in, you know, a post, you know, they, they, they left a bad situation and what they did is they put the roots of our culture and put the roots of deep family ties into how we interacted. And it helped me grow into the man I am today and the dad I aspire to be.
0: That is beautiful, man. I think if I were to empathize with you, You just instantly bring me back to nostalgia, traveling with my dad, my mom, my brother. And travel was very important to my dad with his own story of of leaving Iran during the revolution. And I still instill that through my family. We had a a year of adventure. We prioritize experiences. And like you said, ultimately, it comes down to that togetherness.
1: Yeah. And like all the stuff. I mean, I'm sure I had plenty of toys that came and went. I don't remember any of this stuff, right? Right. And so that's also a big part of my lessons to my children who are growing up in a very—you know—America is a difficult place to grow up because if you don't have the thing that's cool, you're not cool. And the and there's millions and millions of marketing brainwaves that have gone into that, and that to me is dark side, right? They are trying to pull your child into consumer, turning them into a hungry ghost, and so I really fight for experiences and connection and love because that's the true foundation of a child and and their self-worth and their ego strength and all of it.
0: Totally. Wow. Wow. It's a perfect place to end. Pedro, John, thank you. This was a gift. I appreciate the time you've created for this. I appreciate the energy, the light you're bringing to the world. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being you. Is there anything left unsaid?
1: No, thank you. It was delightful. I really enjoyed this. Awesome.